Please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. If you have been with us at all, you've been noting, I hope, that we're working our way through this great epistle, verse by verse, Sunday by Sunday. And the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans uh, major in doctrine, Bible teaching, Bible truth about our salvation, about our Savior, about God's plan and purpose for the ages. And now when we turn the corner from chapter 11 to chapter 12, we move from doctrine, as important as that is, to duty. We move from belief to behavior. And all good doctrine does that. It doesn't end with just something in our heads or even in our hearts. Doctrine moves out to duty, to daily living. And I trust that as we've been going initially through the first few verses of chapter 12, and as we continue to look at chapter 12 this morning, that you are thinking, how does this fit in life? How do I live this out? What difference should this make for me? You know, it's been my experience that when someone comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ and they're made a new creature in Christ, that when they tell people about that, that oftentimes some lost people do one of two things. They either put you up on a pedestal as if you can never do wrong, you're holier than thou to them, or alternatively, the other end of it, these lost people might say, oh, you're saved? You're this born-again Christian? Well, I know that you're not perfect. You're just as bad as me, and I'm going to prove it. What we're going to look at this morning in Romans 12, 17 to 21, this paragraph is going to give us five commands. And if by God's grace and by his Spirit's enablement we can keep these five commands, it's going to take us off of the pedestal or take the bullseye off of our back, and it's going to give us a credible, consistent, compelling testimony for Jesus Christ. These five commandments are that important, and they're that practical. So what are these five commandments that if we will keep them to the best of our abilities, that will give us a credible testimony for Christ, and in fact, will overcome evil with good? in our spheres of influence. If you keep these five commandments with the Holy Spirit's power enabling, then you will do your little part to overcome evil in your little sphere of influence. So what are these five commandments? I'm going to tell you one by one. Let's start with the first commandment as found in Romans 12, verse 17, part A, the first part of verse 17. See it there? Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. So the first command is rather simple, but hard to live out. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. You know, to repay evil for evil is as easy as falling off of a log. It's our default position. When someone does us evil, it's easy for us to connive and plan and work to bring evil to them. In case you doubt that, let me give you a personal illustration. When Beth and I were students at Dallas Seminary, we both worked in a family restaurant waiting on tables. And in our restaurant, we were to never let a guest in our restaurant knowingly leave our restaurant mad at the restaurant. We were always to discern when a person was not satisfied, and we were to go to that person and say, what would it take to make you happy? 
I'm sorry for what's happened. What would it take to make you happy? And then we were told by management as wait staff, we should do anything they asked for to make them happy before they left the restaurant. Comp their meal, no problem. Comp the whole table's meals, no problem. Give them a full refund, no problem. Just don't let a customer in that restaurant knowingly leave dissatisfied. Do you know why? Because people in their flesh replay, repay evil with evil. The restaurant industry has done many surveys, of course, but one survey that restaurateurs have done and live by as gospel truth, if you satisfy a customer in your restaurant, they on average will tell two to three persons they were happy at your restaurant. But if you dissatisfy a customer in your restaurant, on average they will tell eight to ten persons they were upset with you as a restaurant. Do you know what that means? That means that any restaurant has to please three times more people than they tick off just to break even. That's because it's so easy for any of us to repay evil for evil, to pass along that bad report about that restaurant far and wide. But God says, no, that's not the way of the believer. That's not the way of the Christ follower. The way of the believer who's filled by the Holy Spirit is not to repay evil for evil to refuse to do it. The second command in our uh, paragraph is this, be careful to do what is right in the sight of all reasonable people. Did you hear me? Be careful to do what is right in the sight of all reasonable people. I see that in the second half of verse 17. Please see it with me. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Wait a minute, Pastor Rob. It doesn't say do what is right. It says respect what is right. That's true. The translators of the NASB have translated the Greek here respect. That's okay. But it also means to do. Do what is right in the sight of all men. Now, I've added the word reasonable. Be careful to do what is right in the sight of all reasonable people because do you know what? There's a world out there of unreasonable people. In the Bahamas and in every nation on earth, there's a lot of unreasonable people. And you know how I know they're unreasonable? Because they've twisted their logic, they've twisted their thinking, they've twisted their outlook to say that evil is good and good is evil. We're not to pander to those warped people. We are to do what is right in the sight of all reasonable people. The people who call wrong, wrong. The people who call right, right. We are to do in their sight all that we can that is right. Let me ask you. You do know that you are an epistle, a letter read of men and women. Not an inspired epistle, like the scriptures have epistles that are inspired, but you all are letters read by people who know you and observe you, listen to you and work with you and live with you. Let me ask you, what are you more concerned about? Your behavior's impact on lost persons who know you or your behavior's impact on saved persons who know you? What are you more concerned about? Your impact, positive or negative, on the lost or your impact, positive or negative, on the saved? Well, that's a trick question. 
You should care about your life's impact on both the lost and the saved. You should care how you are impacting people pre-Christ and people after salvation in Christ. Your whole life should matter to you. Who you live your life before, the audience you live your life before this week should matter to you. You should want to point them to Jesus and salvation and not otherwise. And so the second command is we are to be careful to do what is right in the sight of all reasonable people. By the way, I like basketball and hockey and football, pretty much everything. I'm learning to like cricket, learning the game. Rugby is an interesting one I like as well. But anyway, let me tell you about basketball because my Toronto Raptors gave a good run against the Cleveland Cavaliers and lost in six games. I was very proud of them. They didn't win, but they did well. Have you ever noticed that pro basketball head coaches always wear a tie, a shirt, and a jacket or a suit? Why do they do that? Because they respect the game of basketball. They respect the game of basketball, so they dress accordingly. They also want the referees to respect them. Now, if one of the assistant coaches on the Toronto Raptors showed up for an NBA game dressed in sweats and a golf shirt that hasn't been ironed for three weeks, the head coach wouldn't take off his suit and tie and dress in his sweats and his golf shirt. He wouldn't come down to the level of the assistant coach that wasn't showing proper respect. Instead, he'd tell that assistant coach, you get in that locker room, get a shirt and tie on and a suit or a sport coat, and then I'll see you on the sidelines. And until you're dressed properly, don't bother coming out to the sidelines. And so when we talk about the command of being careful to do what is right in the sight of all reasonable people, we're saying you take the highest standard possible. Don't dumb down your witness for Jesus. Don't sully the appearance of your life for the sake of someone who says, you don't need to live that way. You don't have to return the extra change to the cashier at Kelly's. You're entitled to that 20 feet of pavement ahead of you at every roundabout, so you just sit on the horn. No. Be careful to do what is right in the sight of all reasonable people. So we're to respect what is right. Be careful to do what is right in the sight of all reasonable people. There's a third command in this chock full of truth passage, and it's this. Live at peace with everyone you can. Live at peace with everyone you can. Verse 18 has yellow marker on it in my Bible because it's such a beautiful principle, helpful principle. 18, if possible, isn't always possible. So far as it depends on you, you can't do anything at what depends on the other guy. You can only keep your side of the fence in your yard clean. You can't keep the other person's yard clean. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If it's possible, 
Do everything you can to be at peace with that irritating person, that unreasonable person, that difficult person, that pessimistic person, that negative person, that demanding per person. Do everything you can in your power, so far as it depends on you, to be at peace with that kind of a person. Let me tell you right now, that's supernatural. That is supernatural. It's not always possible. God allows for that. You can only control you. You can only let the Holy Spirit control you. And all people means the reasonable people, the unreasonable people, the likable people, the unlikable people, the educated people, the uneducated people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Alan Johnson is a commentator, a man who studies the Bible and wrote a little commentary that I have in my library. And Alan Johnson gives some very wise counsel to do with verse 18. He looked at verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And Mr. Johnson, Brother Johnson, says this, and I quote, Peace cannot be secured at the cost of God's truth, or if others refuse to cooperate. Christians should do everything in their power to be the reconciling salt in hostilities between persons in the world. If conflict arises where the Christian is involved, let it only arise because of the Christian's stand for the truth of God and justice. Strife and conflict should never be sought or initiated by the Christian. End of quote. quote. If possible, incredible body of Christ, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, all people. On we go to the fourth command this morning. Do not take revenge but leave room for God's wrath. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. I see that in verses 19 and 20. Please see it with me. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Again, this command to review is do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. How do you respond to antagonism? How do you respond to persons who have it out for you, who are picking a fight, who are just wanting to stir you up? to show you that you're not on the pedestal of perfection as a Christian, or to hit that bullseye on the back of your back to, to slam you down and to nullify your witness for Jesus Christ where you were. How do you respond to antagonism? I am greatly challenged by this quote. Jesus was set at naught, but gave to us an example of how to behave when misunderstood. When your opinion is ridiculed, a sign of true greatness is to remain silent. When your qualifications are being discussed, pro and con, 
You grow tall in the estimation of others if you show a holy indifference as to the outcome. When you have to stand alone and no influential person seeks your company or dares to become an intimate friend, this is when you become closely related to Jesus. When you are quick to fight your own battles, Jesus steps aside and gives you the job. But if you refuse to defend yourself, he'll defend you better than any shrewd lawyer could ever do." End of quote. Don't take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. Now, one of the motivators that at least has been in my heart when it hasn't been right, maybe it's in yours when your hearts aren't right, one of the motivators for refusing to uh, obey this command and instead to want to take revenge, which is wrong, is that we lose sight that God is the final say. We lose sight that there's a long track that God keeps track of. He doesn't just keep track of things in the short run. God keeps track of things in the long run. And every idle thought, every spoken word, every deed done or left undone will be judged for the unbeliever in Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. It says that when Jesus, the great judge, judges all of the unredeemed, not any of us if we're redeemed, all of the unredeemed of all the ages, and they stand before Jesus as judge individually at the great white throne judgment. It says there are books that are open and they're judged in the lake of fire forever according to the deeds written in the books. This tells me there's degrees of punishment in hell. There's a book, the book of life. And if anyone of an unbeliever stands before Judge Jesus at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, 11 to 15, and has the audacity to say to Jesus, I don't deserve hell. Judge Jesus looks in the book of life, not that he needs a book, but it's evidentiary to the person. Your name is not in the book of life. I don't deserve much punishment in hell. Your deeds are recorded in the books every one of them that you didn't let Jesus Christ pay for with his blood. Jesus knows everything. He doesn't need books to keep track of accounting, but he has kept those books so he can give evidence even to rebels at the great white throne judgment that they deserve hell, they rejected Christ, and the degree of punishment in hell will be tailor-made with justice to their own life's deeds. Do you know Christ as Savior? If you don't and if you persist in rejecting him, you will stand before him at the great white throne judgment. I don't want that for anybody in the sound of my voice. Now is the time to turn from sin, turn from self, turn from Satan to the Savior. With the hand of childlike faith, place your trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for you on the cross of Calvary and say, I'm a sinner. I desperately need a Savior. Jesus, I believe you to be the Savior. You lived a perfect life. You said, shed innocent blood, and the Father raised you from the dead to prove that my sins are paid for in full. I cling to you. I trust you and only you to make me right with you to reserve a place in heaven for me and exempt me from the great white throne judgment. Make that your prayer of confession of faith this morning. 
Your mom can't do it for you. Your daddy can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. Your best friend can't do it for you. It's a personal decision. Make it. God, part of his perfect set of attributes and characteristics is his wrath. And the person who's yanking your chain, that God this morning in Romans 12 is commanding you not to take revenge against, if that person doesn't repent of sin, the ultimate judgment, the wrath of God, will be upon that person for, among other things, yanking your chain. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. Verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. You say, Pastor Rob, how are putting burning coals on my enemy's head a good thing? How is that blessing him? How is that helping him? Well, there are two possible interpretations, at least, to what this means. And I'll give you the one that I don't hold to. Then I'll give you the second one that I do hold to. Some people understand this idea of putting coals of fire, heaping coals of fire upon your enemy's head as a kindness, is that these coals are fire of shame and remorse, which are to be burning in the violated conscience of your offender. And hopefully they say that these fires of conviction lead the offender to repentance toward God, repentance toward you, restitution toward you, and ultimate reconciliation with you. I don't take that approach. I don't think that's what it means, but some do. Here's what I think it does mean. That the coals here were in fact a fire starter kit. And nomadic peoples at the time of the New Testament who didn't have one fixed address, but who moved around campsite to campsite, bonfire to bonfire, they needed something that they could start a fire with quickly that would give them heat in the night, and heat to cook food, and light at night. You needed a campfire. And so what I think it's saying is, you have an enemy? You want to hold back on your revenge and leave the ultimate wrath to God? Then heap a fire starter onto his head so that when he goes to his next campsite, he can start a fire quickly, have light, heat, and cook food. You say, Pastor Rob, I still don't get it. How do you put burning coals upon a person's head without their scalp burning? You take a towel or a big piece of cloth and you dip it in very cold water, soak it. And then you wrap that cloth or that towel around your head and make a bowl that'll support the bowl that the coals are in. And you carry this bowl of the fire starter to your next campsite, having your hands free to hold Junior's hand or to hold something else. That's what I think it means. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. I'll let you to study that out as students of God's word to come where you want to land on this. But one thing we do know, that whatever it means, it's good for the bad guy, not bad. It's encouragement for the enemy, not harm. That's supernatural. That takes God at work in our lives not to take revenge, 
but to leave ultimate wrath with God if that person is deserving of wrath at the great white throne judgment. Fifth command, last command in our verses for this morning, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See it there in verse 21? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know what, church? The person who believes and speaks as though the born-again Christian in Jesus Christ can not be overcome by evil, we're impervious to evil, we're bulletproof against evil overcoming us, is not realistic. It's possible for true Christians to be overcome by evil, not to lose our salvation, which is permanent, but to be overcome by evil to getting a jaded outlook, a cynical mindset a compromise and toleration of evil. It's easy for the true blood-blot child of God, if they're not careful, to be overcome by evil. This verse commands, do not be overcome by evil. By the way, why would there be a command to the believers at Rome not to be overcome by evil if believers can't be overcome by evil? They could be, and so could we. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Satan can't change your eternal destiny if you're saved. He can't cause you to lose your salvation. He can't. But he can zap your testimony. He can nullify your witness. He can give you an overcoming to evil. He can swamp you. He can engulf you. He can hogtie you. He can knock you down. He can hold you to the mat. He can drag you through the mud. He can keelhaul you. He can train wreck your testimony. He can sour your speech, blacken your thoughts, jade your evaluations, sap your joy, drain your optimism, and squish your faith. That's what he wants to do. Believers, if not careful, can be overcome by evil. Beth and I enjoy Cabbage Beach, as some of you know. We like to swim there often as we can for exercise, beautiful place. And some days the sea is wavy, right? Especially in the winter. Some days it's kind of marginal to us whether we would go into the surf or we wouldn't because we don't want to get knocked down and injure a knee or something like that. So now my practice is to offer my right arm to Beth, Chevrolet lives on the beach, and I walk her into the surf, and then I walk her out of the surf with joy. It's my privilege. But when it is wavy, we have to see how big are these waves, where on the beach are they breaking the biggest, what is the spacing between the waves, and we have to watch, and we have to make a judgment. Is there enough space between the wave that hits the beach and the next wave for us to go in safely without getting knocked down? Now, what would happen if we just disregarded all those factors about the surf size and frequency of the waves and the, and the pitch on the beach. We just said, forget about all that. We're just going to forge ahead. We'd probably get knocked down. I think it's pretty certain we get knocked down. Waves from the evil one using people are going to come at us every single day because we're not home yet. You might have a passport for the Bahamas, and I have a passport for Canada and the United States, but whatever your passport is, that's not your home. If you know Christ, your home is heaven. And see, we're not home yet. 
until we're home, the waves on the beach of our experience are going to come at us, and we had best be alert. We had best not overestimate our capacities. We had best be careful and prudent so that we're not overcome by evil. By the way, when a person, when a believer is starting to be overcome by evil, they become a pessimist. <laughs> Do you know what a pessimist is? That's a person who sees a cloud inside every silver lining. A pessimist is a person who is seasick the entire voyage called life. A pessimist, you should borrow money from a pessimist because they never expect you to pay it back. You've heard about the pessimistic crawfish, crawfish fisherman? He had a Labrador retriever, and he trained this retriever to jump into the water, go down to the bottom, about 20 feet max, and catch a crawfish alive in its mouth and bring it up to the boat. Well, there was this pessimist on board the boat with this crawfish fisherman and his Labrador retriever. And the owner of the dog said, watch this, Bill, <laughs> watch this. And the dog jumps in, swims down 20 feet, and comes up with a crawfish in his mouth and spits it on the deck. And the pessimist says, ah, oh, you got stuck with a dog that can only do one of those crayfish at a time. That's a pessimist. That's a person who has started to become overshadowed by evil. Don't be that person. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on Christ. Now, five commands. And we're saying that if by God's grace and in God's strength, you will keep these five commands, then you will overcome evil. Then evil will not overcome you. So what are these five commands? Now, as I repeat these, don't look at your clock and say, what time is it? You listen. Not to a preacher, listen to the Holy Spirit. I believe in a crowd this size that the Holy Spirit wants to do business with each of us, and he wants to tap us on the heart when, we, when I read these commands, and he wants to say, Elliot, what about that one? And then my response ought to be, yes, Holy Spirit, you're right. Will you help me this week in your strength to obey that particular command? So let's go. Block out everything else. Is the Holy Spirit tapping you on the heart don't repay anyone evil for evil. Is God the Holy Spirit tapping you on the heart to do what is right in the sight of all reasonable people? Is the Holy Spirit bringing to your attention, live at peace with everyone you can? Could the Holy Spirit be bringing to your mind and heart's forefront the command, don't take revenge? Or could the Holy Spirit be tapping you on the heart and saying, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good? Church family, if our lives are tending in these directions of obedience, if typically on the video camera of our lives it's seen effort and progress toward obeying these five commands, then we will not be overcome by evil. And God could even in his grace help our little lives overcome evil with good. I'll close with this. Mary Penska of Midlothian, Illinois, tells of a boy who, with a little practice, could easily have grown up to be a juvenile delinquent. 
Coming from a broken home, he was hostile, undisciplined, and a real menace. One day, Mary's mother was appalled to find the youngster, hammer in hand, furiously pounding nails into her house. In anger, she could have issued a sharp rebuke and a stern warning, but she remained calm and quietly reached into her apron pocket and took out a $5 bill and held it out to the boy. Please promise you'll never do that again, she said. Also, would you please watch my house that none of the other boys in the neighborhood would pound nails into it? Overwhelmed by this unexpected response, the youngster readily agreed. She overcame evil with good, and so can all of us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit who wrote it to help us to live out its truth this week. Lord, may we cling to the one or more commands that we need to really work on, and may we find our lives in line with your will and purposes for each of us. To your glory, Lord, may you be glorified in this incredible body of Christ as we scatter to our places of residence and work. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious, exalted, glorious, and powerful name. Amen.